Are the lights on? Good. Welcome to Listen with the Lights On. I'm Jessica Blaustein Marshall. And I'm Patrick Garrett. Generally speaking, the way we've portrayed witches in literature and in movies and in pop culture, they should have these magical, mystical natures. A lot of times there are, you know, yeah. old crones, like stooped old ladies with warts and cackles and things. and Superstition and... just from down the block. The kids making fun of the old lady down the street. But pop culture aside, witches actually play a significant role in the history of this region. That role most famously derives from the Salem witch trials of the late 1600s. But witch lore extends hundreds of miles and hundreds of years beyond that. The New England folklore blog author, Peter Muse, joins us today to discuss current concepts of the folkloric witch in New England and shares with us a few witchy tales from central Massachusetts. New England, historically, the legend of witches is tied to its history. I mean, it's just sort of interwoven throughout the centuries. Can you just sort of sum that up? Oh, sure. I mean, that's that's a big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it is. It, there's a lot of history, hundreds of years. and a lot. I mean, there's a lot of history here, and when the Puritans and the English settlers came over from England, a lot of the folklore of England they didn't bring with them. So you don't see a lot of folklore about fairies or dragons or giants or things like that. They didn't bring that folklore with them because that folklore was often tied to specific landscape features in England. So like, oh, that hill is where the fairies live, or that rock was put there by a giant. So when they came over to New England, the witch stories are one of the types of stories they could bring with them because witches are your neighbors. Witches are people who live around you. They're not another mythical species. They're humans. Perhaps, I think, you know, things in England that would be blamed on fairies or other magical creatures here in New England, everything got blamed on witches. And the devil, too. The devil was a big one. I really like witch stories. It's sort of one of my favorite genres of legend. And happily, New England has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witch stories. It's like I think the epicenter of, pe- of, of witch stories for the country, It's the, the epicenter country, right? of witch stories. It is. I don't know if that's good or bad. I well, think it depends true. on the witch, right? <laughs> White magic right. or black magic? And also what happens. You know, I think people know about the Salem witch trials, which were sort of the most visible and the most dramatic and the most tragic of the witch trials. But there were witch trials stretching back well before that. Pretty much as soon as the Puritans landed and got off the boat, they started to accuse each other of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And there was one that happened in 1650, which was, you know, 42 years before the Salem witch trials in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's one of the earlier cases of witchcraft in Massachusetts. It all started with this couple, a man named Hugh Parsons and his wife, Mary Parsons. And they were not a popular couple in Springfield. And Springfield at this time would have been a very small community, really just more of a settlement sort of surrounded by a stockade fence. And so Hugh was sort of an argumentative person. He was unpopular with his neighbors. He and Mary at one point had accused one of their neighbors of being a witch. And all their neighbors said that's not true. And then turned around and then accused Hugh and Mary Parsons of slander. So it sort of backfired on them. And Hugh just sort of kept up his argumentative ways, fighting with people. And gradually people began to think that he himself was a witch, that Hugh was the witch. And so he started to get blamed for all sorts of strange things that were happening in Springfield. And to us, they sound sort of minor, 
but to people at the time, they were sort of serious matters. For example, a woman was cooking a piece of meat in a covered pot, and she stepped out for a while. And when she came back, the meat had disappeared from the pot. I think a witch has somehow bewitched my stew and stolen the meat, and I bet it was Hugh Parsons. You know, a cow acted strangely. People think it was Hugh Parsons. He must have done this. And so this, he started to get this reputation among people of being a witch. And at one point, he even was accused of bewitching a pudding. So a woman had made a pudding. It came out of the, the fireplace, and she opened it up, and it just sort of fell apart. And she said, oh, someone has bewitched my pudding. I think it was Hugh Parsons. Surprisingly, bewitched puddings show up in a lot of New England folklore because puddings were a big thing and they were a tricky thing to make. People often thought their puddings were bewitched. So Hugh was out one day working in the woods. They were cutting, he was cutting down trees with some other men, and one of the men he was working with made a joke to him about, oh, yeah, so-and-so said you bewitched her pudding. You know, I think that's really funny. And almost immediately after the man said that, he dropped his axe and injured himself <laughs> on his foot. And so people said, oh, my God, Hugh Parsons is getting really serious now. He, look, he's injured this man's foot because the man joked about him being a witch. And so Hugh Parsons was arrested for witchcraft. And, you know, the, the local community leaders held a small trial for him. And during that small trial, his own wife came, stepped forward and said, oh, yeah, Hugh is definitely a witch, 100%. I agree that Hugh is a witch. And then she also confessed that she herself was a witch, she confessed that she supposedly had murdered her own child and told the people gathered there that she and her husband would transform into black cats and roam around the settlement at night causing trouble. People seem to think that Mary Parsons had some mental issues, perhaps. I mean, her child had died, so perhaps she felt guilt over it or something like this. So the, the community leaders in Springfield just didn't know what to do with this. It was sort of outside of their realm of, of authority. So they sent Hugh and Mary Parsons into Boston, which was the capital of the colony, to stand on trial. And Hugh actually was found innocent, and there were records of that. The magistrates in Boston said, you know, all of this stuff is just hearsay. There's no evidence that Hugh Parsons was a witch. He's found innocent. And they did not find Mary guilty of witchcraft either, but they did apparently find her guilty of murdering her own child. So it's not quite clear what happened to Mary Parsons. There's no record of her being executed, so she might have been reprieved or she might have died in prison. Her husband actually ended up settling closer to Boston in Watertown, Massachusetts, and remarrying. So, But that's a really early witch story, which is not from Salem. Hmm. Now, what kind of evidence? I mean, they just had people come up and, and say that their pudding was bewitched or that their meat disappeared. Is that the kind of thing that the court would hear when they were trying somebody? It is. It is. Uh, they would. And I think that's one of the reasons why the magistrates in Boston said there's no evidence that Hugh Parsons is a witch mm -hmm. because they didn't have enough firm evidence. When you got to like the Salem witch trials, they started to also add in what's called spectral evidence. Hmm. And this is the idea that witches cause their trouble, work their magic, basically, by sending out their souls. So that, you know, the witch may be home sleeping, but their soul goes out and causes trouble. And uh. so the Puritans use the word specter to refer to this soul that's out wandering around and causing trouble. So you might say, oh, I was asleep and I saw Hugh Parsons come into my house and he, you know, bewitched my pudding or something like that. And really it was his specter that you had seen. And it's that belief lasted for a surprisingly long time. I actually found a witch story from 1843, mm -hmm. so almost 200 years after the story with Hugh and Mary Parsons, 
from Pepperell, Massachusetts, where a farmer named Absalom Lawrence, so we'll just call him Farmer Lawrence, <laughs> you know, he had a, Farmer Lawrence had a prosperous farm, he was married, he had, you know, a wife, he had several children, and things were going great for him for a while, but at a certain point, his 13-year-old daughter started to have strange fits. So she would sort of contort, twist her head back, and be in pain. There were other times where she couldn't open her mouth until people pulled it open physically. Um, she complained about feeling pinpricks in her body and things like this. And so Farmer Lawrence called in the local physician who couldn't really find anything physically wrong with his daughter. So they start to suspect that something else might be happening. And then strange occurrences started to happen at the house. So pots and pans would move on their own, food would spoil surprisingly, and things like that. So they started to have lots of almost poltergeist activities and how strange noises were heard, groans, footsteps when nobody was there. And so they really were concerned that something more serious was happening. So if they had been around in the 1600s, they probably would have gone to a Puritan minister or somebody and said, you know, I think our daughter has been bewitched or someone, a witch is attacking our house. But since it was the 1840s, they actually looked in a newspaper and found someone who was a traveling magnetist. And so a traveling magnetist was someone who would cure illness through hypnotism. And so they found this man named Dr. Nevins, who was a traveling magnetist, and he came to their house with his assistant, who was this young woman, and what they did, Dr. Nevins put the young woman into a hypnotic state. And when she was in the hypnotic state, she was able to diagnose the situation. And what she saw was, while she was in her trance state, she saw a woman on a horse with no horseshoes, which is significant, a woman on a horse with no horseshoes riding slowly towards the house. And then the woman on the horse got off the horse and somehow squeezed herself under the through the crack underneath their front door and That's came creepy. into the bedroom. Yeah, very creepy. Came into the bedroom where the daughter was sleeping, preparing to attack her. Um, luckily, due to Dr. Nevin's magnetic powers, this witch figure was repulsed from the home. But as she fled, the people present could hear her footsteps and hear her groaning, and they could hear her exit through the basement door. Wow. Which is kind of a creepy story, I think, particularly when you think this is from 1843. Yeah, um, relatively more more modern. At least when you hear the stories from the 1600s, you can kind of write it off as, well, it was people from the 1600s. They didn't know much about <laughs> modern, more modern life, but uh, and then right. had the inventions. That is unsettling, for sure. So there are witch stories even that were recorded from the 1890s. There was a folklore writer named Clifton Johnson who went around the country collecting folklore. He wrote a book about New England folklore called What They Say in New England. Mm -hmm. But really, he gathered most of it from central and western Massachusetts, from farmers who lived in those areas. And so he had several stories about witches. And in one of them, it's about a a man who owns a mill. His name is Mr. Jones. And so he owns, owns a mill where you would grind corn or grind wheat or things like that. So one night... He's at home, and he tells his wife, oh, you know, honey, I have to go work at the mill tonight. We've got a lot of customers, and I want to make sure I can grind everybody's corn. And his wife is like, oh, you know, it's so cold outside, and it's warm here in bed. Why don't you just stay with me at least through the night? You know, we can snuggle. He's like, sorry, honey, I have to go work in the mill. She's like, oh, I'm disappointed, but I understand. So he (laughs) walks off to the mill. Maybe those were not her exact words. but (laughs) Not quite her words, no. But imagine something equivalent in 1890s talk. Right, right. And so he goes off to the mill, 
And, you know, he's working alone, grinding the corn, and the mill has all these big wooden wheels and stone wheels that are churning, you know, powered by a river. And he's grinding up the corn to make cornmeal. And as he's doing this, he notices a black cat suddenly appears in the mill. And he's never seen it before, but he's not particularly concerned. You know, it's farm country. There are cats all over the place. And so the black cat's really frisky. It's kind of rubbing up against him. It's very friendly. It's purring. It's doing all these things. It keeps shooing the way, like, shoo, shoo, I have work to do. And finally, the cat is, like, standing on one of the big grindstones to try to get close to him, and its foot gets caught. Oh, no. And its foot, its foot is ripped off. Oh. And with a, this howl, the cat runs out. Mr. Jones doesn't think that much of it because, you know, there were a lot of cats, and people were sort of crueler to animals back then. Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, that was a little weird, but okay. He finishes his work, and then he goes home. And he finds his wife in bed, and she's looking really pale. Oh, no. And just kind of looking really sick. And she's all covered up. And he's like, oh, you know, honey, what's wrong? You know, you don't look too good. And she's like, oh, nothing, nothing. <laughs> and she's sort of trying to hide something from him. So, of course, he, you know, pulls back the covers. And when he pulls back the covers, he sees that one of her hands has been ripped off. Oh, wow. Because, of course, she was the the black cat. Transfiguration. Then, transfiguration. He has realized that his wife is indeed a witch. But that story is from the 1890s, and so you can sort of see the similar theme even from the 1650s of witches turning into black cats from the same basic part of the country. Are there any, I mean, I know nowadays it's not as, you know, it's not as easy to prove witchcraft, so to speak, but have there been any more modern stories, stuff from the 20th century that you've been able to come across in terms of witches, well, you know, there's the word witch has so many different definitions right. now. So you, when you talk about witches, you can talk about the people who were accused of being witches in the 1600s, who were, of course, not witches, mm-hmm. but were just unpopular people usually who, you know, were tried for crimes. So you have that type of witch. Then you have kind of the folkloric witch, which would be like the witch in the story I just told, or, you know, witches from the Brothers Grimm, or those type of witches. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think you also have, you know, modern Wiccans, or people who practice witchcraft as spirituality, who are not not malevolent witches. So (laughs) the word witch is used in so many different ways now, it's hard to really... um, True, true. And and you don't want to offend anyone either. (laughs) You don't want to offend anybody. (laughs) I did find a story, though, from the 20th century, um, from Freetown, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Um, It was told to a man named Christopher Balzano, and Christopher Balzano was a paranormal investigator. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote a book about Freetown in southeastern Massachusetts, where they have lots of paranormal activity, apparently. Mm -hmm. And so in this story, um, some teenage boys who live on the edge of a large state forest reported that for quite a few years, they would see a female figure in the woods that would sort of, you know, be lurking in the distance wearing a black robe. Sometimes at night they would hear her laughter and they sort of, in their mind, they all thought of her as a witch. And when they would talk about her together, they'd say, oh, I think we think there's a witch out there. And of course, the creepy thing is several of them said that at night they would see her outside their window trying to um, get into their room to do no, you know, to do who knows what. Um, And they never let her, they never let her in. And there were 
some ruins in the woods near where these boys lived, which they, in their mind, said, oh, these are the ruins of the witch's house, and we're seeing her ghost, and it's been there for hundreds of years. Hmm. And there was no real evidence that anyone had ever been tried for witchcraft in Freetown. So that was one of the most recent ones I had found, which was creepy. I thought it was creepy myself. I I think generally anybody lurking out your bedroom window, whether it's a a witch or a monster or a ghost, is is a little unsettling for me, so for sure. But but that that is kind of interesting too that that it kind of was a, a mix between a witch and a ghost like right. multiple supernatural creatures at once <laughs> i think there's a lot of stories from around new england about witches and ghosts combined because a witch's spirit i think is hard to put to rest mm-hmm. is a, a, something you see a lot so um you know i know there there was a witch in hampton new hampshire which is a little outside of central massachusetts obviously a woman named eunice cole and she was believed to be a witch through much of her life. She was never convicted of witchcraft. The people in Hampton tried several times, but the authorities are always like, no, you're crazy. She's an innocent person. But when she died, the people in Hampton buried her supposedly at a crossroads with a stake in her heart and a horseshoe on top of her to kind of keep her spirit in the ground. I think the, the stake in the heart, the idea is that you're actually nailing the soul down so it can't get up. And the horseshoe is a feature you've seen in a lot of New England folk stories and folk magic, which the horseshoe repels witches and keeps them out of houses and keeps them out of barns and things like that. And people still do hang horseshoes above doorways now. I don't think they necessarily think of it as keeping out witches. They think of it as good luck. Do you have a favorite tale about a witch? Tell us about it. Email us at lightson at wamc.org. Thanks for joining us. Listen with the Lights On is a production of WAMC. Our theme music is Grizzly Reminder by Midnight Syndicate. For more spine-tingling tales, check out our podcast or head over to wamc.org.